All right. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I am so excited to have this time with Dr. Matera, just to talk to him, glean from him, learn from him. He wrote this book, Poisonous Power. I encourage you to pick it up. As you read through these pages, you'll see he is jealous for the true nature of Christ. As I was reading it, I saw that he clears the vision to be able to distinguish Christ-likeness and unchristlike leadership. He actually lays out bullet points for us to be able to see if we're aligned with God and His Word as leaders. The verse that I picked for our time together is really Luke 22, verse 27, where Jesus says at the end of the verse, I am among you as one who serves. Today, if Dr. Matera's words convict you, I encourage you to admit to yourself and to God that you've done wrong and then say, Lord, please help me. No, no need to get angry or upset. Just simply recognize we're all learning and growing. Make things right with the people you have to make things right with and then up and onward, never to return to those things again, to be aligned with Christ, treating his sheep the way they need to be nourished and, and cherished. So Dr. Matera, thank you so much for coming on. Oh man, my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eric. I have so many questions, but I've distilled them down into th three or four main questions. Can you start just by telling us what abusive leadership is? Well, abusive leadership could be psychological, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse. Uh, it basically all boils down to a person utilizing their title or position of power to take advantage of those that are vulnerable to them, whether they're subordinates under their care or whether they're a spiritual leader counseling somebody who makes themselves vulnerable to them, uh, or they're a, you know in a hierarchical structure, let's say they're a CEO and they have a secretary, they have other people trying to move up the ladder of success so they become like sycophants to them in order to gain an elevated position or even a raise and all that. And so they realize that they're in this position of power. And instead of, instead of treating these people as humans and honoring them with dignity and respect, they try to fulfill their own needs, gratify their flesh and or vent towards them out of their own frustrations they use them as scapegoats to abuse them or whatever in order to make you know make themselves uh, happy or to gain their own ends so there's a lot of expressions of abusive leadership that we could explore yeah you've written down i believe uh 12 uh points on this matter one of them that really stuck out to me is this eighth point it says an abusive leader threatens or attempts to scandalize those who don't comply with their demands uh, what, what does that actually mean like what does that look like yeah well basically what we've seen is people who don't adhere to the whims and wishes of an abusive leader oftentimes are blackballed, they're fired and they can't, you know, they'll have a bad review or to get another job and they'll be threatened that that'll happen or they'll be scandalized, like they'll be, you know, even set up with things that the abusive leader 
sets a trap for them so that they could get into trouble uh to hold it against them to have their way or just slander them uh mm -hmm. and you know make them feel horrible because they didn't comply with the demands of the leader so uh yeah it's a coercion it's a manipulation mm. um and there's many ways to manipulate people basically a person who is not emotionally healthy who doesn't have a rootedness in number one in Christ as a son of God or a child of God uh they're going to try to get a uh, identity or to get some kind of good feeling by putting down other people if they don't have a good sense of themselves and people in power you know I've I've said this I think Abraham Lincoln might have been the first to say this is that if you want to see what's really inside a person you won't see it as much when they fail you'll see it more when they're given power wow. that's what when the truth and the true nature of a person is manifest Wow, you're right here. Abusive leaders slander those who turn away from them or those they can no longer control. If they see that a person is or becomes self-aware or independent and refuses to drink their Kool-Aid, they slander them and try to limit their ability to succeed without the leader. I have seen this happen. Uh, point number 12, you say, abusive leaders are control freaks. You've seen this. Oh yeah, well definitely. I've you know I've been in quote unquote full time church ministry for about forty four years and dealt with so many different people, and I'm constantly analyzing myself, analyzing others. I live more of a contemplative, action oriented life where I'm an action driven person, but I'm also very contemplative, and I'm constantly trying to understand my motives and and discern what's going on around me. And that's how I've come up with all of this. But yeah, I've seen how uh, they are very controlling based on insecurity and fear. They demand predictability, obedience to the status quo, meaning obedience to them. They squash critical thinking, creativity, and independence. Wow. They would rather have robotic obedience that produces mediocrity than flourishing family members and or subordinates who fly like eagles. So as a matter of fact, critical thinkers and high ceiling leaders are a big threat to them because they're concerned that they would usurp their authority and or take their place somehow. So, wow. wow. Yeah. Uh, the seventh point you put here is kind of similar. The abusive leader demands absolute, absolute loyalty. You say here, abusive leaders do not want their subordinates and mentorees to receive help or even instruction from anyone else. You see like an exclusivity with these controlling, abusive slash uh, demanding loyalty leaders? Yeah, they try to isolate them. They'll even badmouth other people in the organization or the church so that, and they'll do it to each person that is in their circle, <laughs> even amongst those in the circle to isolate them so that they'll only trust the leader. It's it's a real uh, demonic uh, scheme that is very common, unfortunately, where you pit people against each other so that the only one they all trust is you. 
and it's a way of controlling people and controlling mindsets. Have you yeah. heard that? Are you familiar with the term double separation? Uh, no, I've not heard that. Yeah. Uh, basically, your enemies must be my enemies or I become your enemy. Have, have you seen this kind of thing before? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, of course, where people demand such loyalty that, for example, a pastor, because I, I was a pastor for 40 years. Huh. If someone leaves your church and you're insecure and you're controlling, you will demand that the members, especially your disciples or staff, have nothing to do with them anymore. They should not fellowship with them, talk, communicate, because they are afraid that what that person who departed the church will say will influence them negatively. Uh, and that's crazy. I mean, you know, as a pastor, we've seen many people leave our church. A lot of people come. But we try to stay in good relationship with everybody. Uh, we we try to bless them, and we don't speak ill of anybody. And we even still try to pastor some people, especially if they left because they had a move because of a job or a family situation. Mm -hmm. And until they get another church, we still try to minister to them because we don't want to just objectify people where we love them only when they can do something for us. If we're a true shepherd of the church, we love them for who they are. They're, they're Jesus's flock. And I have to look at everybody as as the sh as sheep of the good shepherd. You quote a verse here, 2 Corinthians 13, 10, that the Lord gave authority for the building up and not for the tearing down. Would you say that abusive leadership is the complete opposite of that? Yeah, well, their idea of building up would be flattery. Whenever someone flatters you, run from them because they're trying to use you. There's a difference between edification and flattery. When they're blowing smoke in your ear, it's not sincere, and it means they're trying to get something out of you or impress you to move up the ladder, use you in some way or whatever. But uh, yeah, but we have to be, uh, you know, building up people has to do with number one, drawing, helping, helping them to draw closer to Jesus. That's number one. Uh, Any way we could help them and equip them in their devotional life, they walk with God, church attendance, discipleship, somehow building them up with with good words, kind words, and sometimes it means corrective words. But the motivation is always the same, not to destroy, but to build up. But those who want to control abusive leaders will try to motivate you by tearing you down wow. so that you will depend on them as the perfect leader to get to the place they need to be. So okay. it's a psychological warfare and using reframing things psychologically in order to get what they want. Why is it important to blow the whistle on these things and not just let them go? Well, you know, and I wrote this book and all these series of essays because I want people, one article I wrote, I don't even know if it made it to this book, is signs that you are under the unhealthy control of someone else. That may be in the book, I don't know. Because I'm trying to awaken people up, trying to get them to understand if they're in unhealthy, toxic relationships, even in the church. Uh, and it's for those in leadership or those who are aspiring to be leaders. 
to show that God knows if I could write a book on this, that means the Lord, who's a lot smarter than me, knows what's going on. And you can't get away with this stuff. So we need to all be careful. All of us can fall into any of these traps, including me, because we're all, you know, born with the Adamic nature. So we have the seed of every single sin that was ever committed is potentially in us and our depraved human nature. So we have to be aware of all this stuff so that we don't fall into it and so that we could identify it for ourselves and for others. Wow. There's another portion here in chapter 12. You talk about power hungry leaders. What does that look like? Uh, power hungry leaders. Well, you know, it's when people are utilizing the, uh, the platform of Christianity, let's say, or politics to feed their ego, their drive, their need for power. Some of it is driven by ego and pride. Some of it's driven by an insecurity and they use positions to medicate themselves, to make them feel better about themselves. Um, some of it's narcissism. They just look at themselves as the center of the universe and if they're in a position of power, they could build structures that please themselves or that center around them. Uh, and and so they want power to protect their narcissistic drives. I remember uh, not long ago, <laughs> I was driving by a church. So this is in the secular world and the church world, driving by a church. And it was a life-size picture of the so-called apostle on the front of the church building. The picture must have been 15 to 20 feet long and about five feet wide or 10 feet, whatever it was. And it was a picture of the apostle of the movement. And every time I drove by this church, I said to my wife or whoever was with me, this is very grievous to God. This person is building a cult. I've never walked in that door, but I know just from that picture, that this is a cult. And sure enough, several years later, after this church started with the picture and all that, this person was arrested for sexually abusing minors and controlling people and sex trafficking people under the name of their church, uh, utilizing their ministry to take advantage of others. I wasn't surprised at that. And so it's a cult-like thing to center power around you and uh, we have to be very, very careful. All of us have a proclivity towards that, and we have to deal with that strongly in our own life. Wow. Uh, you right here in the first point of the power hungry leaders, they only relate to people of power or power people. Uh, what, what does that actually mean? Well, they are constantly connecting with people they perceive could help them get to another place of leadership or connectivity. Um, they, whether, you know, they go to all these social events, conferences or whatever to get the VIP room treatment and, uh, or they'll be, they'll serve on boards, even though they don't really have the time or they care about the mission of a nonprofit or for-profit organization, those they'll serve on a board just to meet other board members and just to uh, climb up the ladder of success. So 
they'll want to be your best friend if they think that you have power Um, as soon as they get what they want or as soon as they become either equal to you or above you in power and influence in the context of the church or community they'll move on from you as if they never knew you they'll be aloof and they'll go to the next person so it's just objectifying people using people for the position of power they have that they could leverage to you until you get what you want and then you go to the next person wow the third point here is they are in competition with other peer leaders i have seen this what 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 have what have you seen with respect to this yeah well they they perceive peer leaders as a threat to their own position Uh, they want to be the alpha dog in the room and if they perceive any other alpha dogs uh alpha leaders they'll try to marginalize them they'll be jealous they'll be envious they may not outright slander them but they'll talk in a dismissive way about them or in a subtle way they might say something like yeah he, he's doing okay work well you didn't say he's bad you didn't say he's sexually immoral but you said it in such a way that you're not impressed with the person mm-hmm. i've seen that many many uh, th- hundreds maybe thousands of times wow. and whenever someone does that uh red flags go up and i'm thinking why do you god if you have nothing good to say to don't say anything wow. you know the more secure you are the more you can lift up people the greatest <laughs> thing that you could ever do is commit yourself to someone else's success oh, wow. to wash to wash someone else's feet John the Apostle said I have no greater joy than to see my children walk in the truth <laughs> Jesus said that you'll do greater works than these because I go to my father the sign of true spiritual maturity is you want to see others do better than you oh, you're committed my. to them you want to see them flourish wow that is the spirit of what we're talking about 22 verse 27 of luke i am among you as one who served that was beautiful i i love it there's a section here you you spoke and i never thought about it like this but i've seen this firsthand you talk about characteristics of a quote demigod leader or demigod leaders what is what does that mean well there's people who has risen to almost godlike status in the church and in culture you know and they're worshiped almost as little gods and even pastors with small churches they may have an entourage around them bodyguards they're inaccessible except to high level people um and uh you know and of course mega church pastors i've seen this and there's nothing wrong with having a bodyguard if you really think that your life could be at risk. Uh, I had a good friend in Argentina. He had probably the largest church in Argentina. This guy, Carlos Ballard, and he uh, had 28 or 30,000. And he said, you know, he doesn't have a bodyguard. He just walks among the people. That's the kind of spirit that I like. I like seeing a mayor take a train in the New York City subway, uh, people just hanging out, walking amongst the people. and uh so some of these demigods just they purposely have entourages to separate themselves from others to give the the appearance of their their special uh the more inaccessible you are the more this mystique is created wow uh, that yet yeah, you are something 
to be desired. Uh, and those who could touch you are very special. And this is all psychological, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and some people are just so big on titles. They have to be referred to as their title. And if you don't, you insult them. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, in our church, you know, when I was pastoring, I didn't even, people didn't even know who the pastor was. And they went on the website and uh, we went too far. We had to correct that. But, um, <laughs> you know, I remember people asking me, you know who the pastor is when I'm standing in the back? And yeah, I said, it's a guy named Joe Matera, you know, whatever. And I, then I would kid around and say, I'm the pastor. But, you know, they asked me my name. I didn't say Bishop Matera or Dr. Matera or Apostle Joe. I said, Joe. You know, I want to relate to people. And the idea is that if you're too familiar and informal, that people won't respect you. And I've yeah. seen the opposite. People respect me more wow. because I'm trying to be at their level. And I am at their level and relating to them in a very down-to-earth way. Uh, people are not going to respect you because of your title. They're going to respect you because of the life you live, the revelation you carry, the authority from God that God gives you. And if you need a title to have respect, then it's a problem. However, we do need titles because it defines who people are. And, you know, obviously the military needs titles. Uh, you know, public officials need titles and churches could use titles. There's always a hierarchy even that God establishes. However, it's with an egalitarian spirit. As Jesus said, I'm as one among you who serves. He was never too busy to stop when a woman who was hemorrhaging came to him or a child wanted to be blessed or, you know, a servant needed to be healed. There was, he was never so inaccessible that people couldn't approach him. And so this is these this is what I would call the unleader Jesus. He was the unleader compared to the celebrity ego-driven pastor and/or celebrity that we see today. So his methodology of leadership was unlike what we see celebrated today. Wow. Uh, your seventh point under this chapter is they erroneously believe ministry anointing equates with God's favor. Will you talk about that? Sure. Um, you know, God could anoint anybody. He spoke through a donkey to rebuke uh, Balaam. He could uh, anoint people who preach the gospel, even if their lives are living worthy of the gospel. Even if Paul said, I rejoice, even if some preach out of envy and jealousy in Philippians chapter one. And it's not because he's blessing the person, it's because he's blessing the gospel. He's blessing the name of Jesus. He's blessing and honoring the faith of those who believe the message because they don't know the life this person is leading. I mean, you have, you know, people with very uh, questionable character and lifestyle. I could mention you know, the last 70 years in the Voice of Healing movement, there's been many of them, starting with William Branham. Mm. Yet some people got healed. Some people got saved. It wasn't because of the person. Uh -huh. it, was in, it was in spite of the person. Wow. And because God honors his word, not necessarily he's the messenger. Now, 
that messenger will eventually fall flat or die prematurely or be removed from office if they have serious sin and God is not mocked. So that can't go on forever. But just because someone is anointed, I mean, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul said they lacked no gift. Wow. They came behind in no gift. He was talking about the nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. He's talking about speaking in tongues and discerning of spirits, prophecy, all these gifts. They lacked none of that. Yet he had to write a chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, because they weren't walking in love. He had to correct them for receiving sexually immoral, immoral people in 1 Corinthians 5. They were called carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians 3. He said because they were envious and jealous and quarreling amongst each other. So they, they were called... They weren't even able to eat the meat of the word, yet they were walking in all the gifts of the Spirit. So that should show us. Just study 1 Corinthians and we'll see. Just because you're anointed and just because you walk in the gifts of the Spirit and exhibit some of the power gifts, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily a mature Christian. Wow. What would you say is a mark of a mature Christian? Emotional maturity. Emotional maturity and spirituality go hand in hand, walking in humility, walking in forgiveness, uh, being long-suffering. Uh, it all boils down to living the cross-shaped life. Oh, my gosh. The cross-shaped life, taking up our cross. Uh, as Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. He said, I bear my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Let me not boast of anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I into the world. It's living a cross-shaped life, even as the poem in Philippians chapter 2 says, Let this mind be in you that was in mm -hmm. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, took upon himself the form of a servant or slave. Mm -hmm and humbled himself and became obedient even unto the point of death. Yeah. Then God exalted him. Jesus said, whoever is hum humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever exalts himself will be humble. The cross-shaped life is the only life that God really honors in the long run. Wow. Incredible. Uh, the, the last question I have for you, and for some this may be the most important question, and I have seen from the pulpit people say this, the opposite thing here. You have in chapter 25 avoiding the leading regrets of an 80 year old minister the first one is sacrificing my spouse and children on the altar of ministry will you talk about this yes uh, whenever you hear the word pk pk stands for pastor's kids or an acronym for that and whenever you hear the word PK, you're thinking of a backslidden kid, a kid who hates church, a kid who hates God, a kid who doesn't want to follow the Lord. Why is that? Why was that so? Now, I'm 65, so that was an acronym that triggered those kind of thoughts, let's say, in the 1980s and 90s to me. I don't know if it's the same today. However, why so few children of Christians and even leaders serving the Lord in many cases, and uh, not in all cases. And often, and especially, I believe it's worse in a baby boomer generation. I think from what I've observed, the millennial leaders have done much better with being more balanced with their family and their kids. Um, 
but uh, especially the baby boomers, maybe Gen X, uh, they just worked and worked and worked and worked, and they defined the kingdom of God as the ministry, and they did not include their marriage and their, their children in the kingdom. They said God is first, the kingdom is second, and then all the way to the bottom list is be their family. And I learned a long time ago that when it says seek first the kingdom of God, it's talking about loving my wife, spending time and enjoying my kids. Uh, my kids think I'm crazy. We had we didn't have religious atmosphere. We were wrestling, throwing things around. I mean, we loved it. We loved being together. We wanted to have an emotional connection so that when they got older, they'd still want to hang out with us and be with us. <laughs> So it's not just about Bible Bible studies and apologetics, although that's important. Uh, and I remember, you know, pastoring, I would not have more than one or two meetings at night because I wanted people to spend time with their families. Some churches have a meeting every night, five, six, seven nights a week, and that's okay for a limited revival or a period of time, but constantly five, six nights a week, how in the world are people going to spend time with their family? And these poor kids are in church every night. And once they hit 12 or 13, you think, well, they're starting to backslide. No, they never front slid. They always resented having to be in long meetings. Unless the Spirit of God was really moving and God was doing in a real bona fide revival, then it's different. All bets are off. But if it's just laborious, church services that these kids don't understand. Uh, and then you don't spend time with them. You're always running around, visiting someone in a hospital, counseling, your family time's interrupted. You don't um, take any days off. You don't have quality vacations. And even on vacation, all you're doing is working. This tells the kids you're not important. The church people are more important. And then they say, I hate God. I hate the church because they robbed my parents from me. My own mother didn't follow Christ until I was about 16. She was like 38 or something because she was brought up in a legalistic Pentecostal church. Her mother was the pastor. And she never spent time with her mother. Now, her mother meant well. Nobody told her any different. And my grandmother's the reason why we're all serving the Lord. But it was hard for her children to follow the Lord because they resented all the work in the ministry and no commensurate quality time spent with the family. So we have to be careful. Very powerful value system from the Lord. Um, I hope you'll come on again because I have so much more I want to talk to you about, but our time is up. Would you mind closing us out by praying for the people that are watching? Sure. Lord, thank you so much for Eric and this, this podcast that goes out to so many people. And Lord, we all fall short of the glory of God. None of us live a life that's perfect except Jesus. And so, Lord, we aspire to be like Jesus, especially in our leadership. Oh, God, help us to have cross-shaped leadership that arises at a cross-shaped life that comes from a deep working of the Spirit and the Word of God, from being saturated with your Word, so that we can be recreated into that image of Christ, walking in newness of life every day. Oh, Lord, bring us from glory to glory, from faith to faith, 
until each of us appear before you in Zion. O Lord, our greatest desire is to be conformed to the image of Christ and help us as leaders especially to be Christ-like, to be the unleader like Christ, <laughs> so that we can glorify your name and draw people to the cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.